0: Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of July 22nd. I'm your host, Dan Kreider, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the recent leg narrower in credit spreads, what stories have the potential to move the market now, and why an unattractive risk-reward profile may suggest taking profits. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.kreter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: So Dan, it's been over a month since our last podcast on June 24th, and at that time, credit spreads were trading in a narrow band for basically the whole month, between 143 and 160 basis points. In that way, June was reminiscent of the plateau spreads reached between mid-April and mid-May, and the break from the channel has been similar as well, albeit on a smaller scale. IG Index spreads punched through 143 basis points on July 6th and have steadily ground narrower since, closing yesterday at 130 basis points, which is a new post-crisis low, despite less than encouraging virus headlines in U.S.-China relations. Now, our expectation at our last podcast was to expect spreads to come under widening pressure in July as the market priced in risk factors for the autumn months like a worsening virus, a potential Biden presidency, even a Democratic sweep, fading stimulus, and an increase in defaults. Now, it's worth noting that These factors have more or less played out alongside our expectations, but the market hasn't reacted as we thought it would to these risk factors.
2: Yeah, Dan, and I think you hit on an interesting point, which is that a lot of these headlines that we've been tracking have actually been fairly negative over the past several weeks. We've seen virus transmission rates pick up a lot higher than most of us thought they would be in the summer months. Global tensions between the US and China have been bad and economic data has just been so-so. But I think this goes to illustrate that the market has really been trading on a couple things recently, and that's the vaccine and hopes for fiscal stimulus. And both of those have had more or less positive developments over the past couple of weeks.
0: It's a good point, Dan. And today's sort of a microcosm of that thought process. I mean, overnight, we had what I would consider pretty significantly negative headlines on both of those risk factors. First, we had President Trump acknowledging that the virus was likely to get worse before it got better. And then we have news of the closing of a Chinese consulate in Houston. Now, I'll admit that most people probably expected the virus to get worse in the fall, so President Trump's comments likely don't qualify as a shocker. But I still think it's worth something that Trump is saying that now in late July with an election coming up and the news of the closing of the consulate, which the Chinese have vowed to retaliate on, strikes me as one of the more serious headlines on the deteriorating relationship between the US and China recently. And despite those two headlines, equities are actually modestly green on the day. Spreads haven't changed much, but they're not wider, which just goes to show you that even significant headlines on these huge risk factors aren't resulting in a significant deterioration in risk appetite.
2: It's also worth noting on a different note, another tailwind for spreads over the past month or so. Supply has been rather light following the extremely heavy swath of issuance we saw over the past four months. We've been calling for that based on just how much issuance had been done in the second quarter. And we still think that fall issuance could be above trend, but it's likely that a lot of issuers looked around in the spring and decided that given where rates are and given the amount of uncertainty out there, that their best course of action would be to get liquidity to last through the typically slower summer months and then reassess in the fall. And on that note, we'll be looking at the second quarter earnings as they continue to unfold as a potential indicator of how much demand there is to raise cash by these issuers. Particularly, we'll be looking at cash burn and how much of this cash that they've raised over the past few months these issuers have deployed versus how much they're sitting on.
0: It's a good point, Dan. And even if we saw a slowdown in issuance coming, the market was still expecting up to $100 billion in IG supply in July. And we're going to get to maybe half that. So I do think that the improvement in the technical landscape has helped spreads break out of the June range to narrower spread levels. And Dan, going back to your earlier point, I agree with you. I think the market is showing an increasing willingness to look through some near-term negative headlines as long as other factors stay supportive. So for example, Yes, virus cases continue to grow, but as long as we have stimulus flowing and a vaccine likely to be in place by the end of the year and a brighter future, investors are willing to look past the current unsupported virus numbers. And another one, perhaps investors are willing to look past increasing tension between the U.S. and China, given the expectation for a Biden presidency that may bring more stability to the relationship between the world's two biggest economies. So those are the three storylines that I think have the most potential to move the market now, probably in that order, vaccines, stimulus, presidential election. Now, with these three key storylines in mind, Dan, let's discuss for a bit how investors should position their portfolios ahead of the next few months where clarity on all of these three factors are going to come to light. And the way that we typically like to do that is to look at things from a risk-reward standpoint. And we'll start with the risk side. Personally, I see significant risk in all three of these storylines. And of the three, two are likely to play out over more of the long term. The first one, of course, is the vaccine. This is the factor that has by far the largest ability to drive the market. It's also the factor that we have the least insight into.
2: Yeah, so over the past week, we saw some pretty positive headlines on the vaccine front. We saw Moderna's vaccine produced antibodies in all 45 subjects in the phase one trial, Similarly, AstraZeneca's vaccine had positive headlines that came out on Monday. But like you said, Dan, there's a lot of optimism being priced into these vaccines. And there's a long way to go before these are approved and then produced in any scale that could really afford relief on a widespread scale.
0: Yeah, and investors are increasingly put in the uncomfortable position of having to try to read these vaccine results. So we looked at the Moderna results, and some investors were concerned about the level of side effects in the trials. Then you look at the AstraZeneca trial results, and other investors are comparing the level of antibodies to the Moderna one, and the level of antibodies were somewhat disappointing compared to Moderna's. And how do you interpret these? We certainly don't have the answer, but it is by far the most important factor driving the market. We'll leave it by saying that phase three results are expected to come in likely September, potentially as early as late August, and that when those results come or they start to leak out that's going to be obviously the most important factor for the market. Now moving ahead to the presidential election, which will also likely play out in the long term, there is this obvious sentiment that the Democrats would not necessarily be as pro-business as the Republicans. Vice President Biden has already effectively said as much as he's rolled out his economic platform, which backs increasing taxes. But at this point, it appears pretty likely that Joe Biden will win the presidency, the numbers argue that it should be consensus, which means at this point that should probably be priced. But that may not actually be true.
2: Yeah, Dan, it's a good point. I think given the market's fixation on the virus and all things vaccine and then fiscal stimulus in response to the virus, it doesn't seem like the presidential election is as front and center as it otherwise would be. We have just over a hundred days until the election, and it does not feel like it has been the source of as much focus as it typically is. But to your point, it's not just that Joe Biden is likely to take the White House, but the Democrats are now given pretty significant odds of taking both the House and the Senate. So the Democrats' odds of maintaining control of the House are closing in on 90%, and odds of flipping the Senate are just above 60%. So if we had this blue wave in November where the Democrats took the White House in both houses of Congress, it seems like that could be a worst-case scenario for risk assets, right?
0: Absolutely. And we haven't really seen the market price that yet. Now, I mean, of course, some people would argue that the market has priced that, and the market would be higher now if not for the presidential election. But I don't know if I believe that. I do think that if I'm an investor deciding how I want to be positioned right now, the next big thing on my radar is the vaccine. And I expect that if a positive vaccine headline comes in late August, or early September— That's going to be worth more than any headwinds from the presidential election. And even more importantly, I would likely have time to adjust my portfolio between the two. So let's say we get an effective vaccine in September that's going to be available in October. Market rallies big time. And then I can potentially take some profits ahead of any pressure from the presidential election. So it's just a way to demonstrate that the negative impact of a potential blue wave on credit spreads, I don't believe is currently fully priced into the market and lingers as a risk that will likely price in in the next few months. And I'll just highlight one particular risk factor, which is the selection of Biden's VP candidate. Now, it's expected that Biden is going to select an uncontroversial VP candidate. He wouldn't want to do anything to risk his current lead in the polls. Kamal Harris seems to be the presumptive favorite nowadays, but we just note that there have been some headlines over the past week suggesting that Elizabeth Warren is not only not out of the race, but potentially her likelihood is growing. And we just highlight Elizabeth Warren as a possible headwind to credit spreads if she is indeed selected. And that's simply because the selection of Joe Biden's VP is likely to carry more weight than arguably any VP has so far, at least in modern history, given Biden's age and the unlikelihood that he may run again, even if he wins in 2020. And so... The market will price the VP candidate and Elizabeth Warren, outside of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren might be the most progressive Democrat there is. So I'd argue that there is some risk around a Warren VP, even if that remains outside of our base case. But as we said earlier, both the vaccine and the presidential election, that's likely to play out in the longer term. In the near term, we have stimulus, and in fact, that's going to be a very near-term factor likely to play out in the next two weeks. The Senate only has until August 8th to push across another round of fiscal stimulus before going on a month-long recess. And it doesn't seem like the stimulus process is going as smoothly this time around.
2: Yeah, so we're still waiting on the Republicans to unveil their bill, which will be in response to the Democrats' proposal for a $3.5 trillion stimulus bill. Now the Republicans, it's safe to assume, are going to come in with something much smaller than that, probably in the neighborhood of about a trillion dollars. And it doesn't look like, according to the early indications, that this is going to contain as much support for business as the CARES Act did. It's going to be more focused, it looks like, on individual stimulus checks and unemployment benefits and potentially a reduction in the payroll tax, right?
0: Yeah, but even those factors, it's fair to question how broad eligibility is going to be. There's been pretty significant opposition to cutting payroll taxes throughout this entire process. Hard to envision that passing. And then we're talking about stimulus checks limited to people making up to only $40,000 a year, and potentially a reduction in unemployment insurance as a way to try and incentivize people to get back to work. But It seems to me that at this point, a trillion dollars without any real support for business would likely be viewed as a disappointment by the market, as the market likely expects there to be some move to the center from both sides, and that in the end, likely a larger stimulus package will get passed. But it's not as straightforward as it has been in the past. It seems to be more political and more contentious, and there is real risk that a disappointing stimulus package comes, which could threaten credit spreads in the near term. And I would say that the threat to credit spreads from stimulus isn't limited to just fiscal stimulus. We also need the Fed to tweak some of their monetary stimulus programs pretty soon here too. Isn't that right?
2: Yes. The Fed's corporate credit facilities are actually set to run out at the end of September. It's just over two months away. And so I think given the market response to these facilities and how much market functioning has improved since they've been announced, it's very likely that even if risk sentiment doesn't turn worse, that these facilities get extended. And such an announcement would probably come sometime in August.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Even though the Fed has only been buying a billion or maybe a billion and a half of corporate so far, the purchases haven't been very big. But there's been this sort of implicit assumption that if there was another breakdown in liquidity like we had in March, that the Fed would buy more. Who knows how much more? Would they buy $10 billion a week, 15 20 But they would buy more. And if these programs expire at the end of September, that implicit assumption goes away. And to your point, they can't wait until September to extend those programs. It probably has to come in August. Otherwise, investors may start to sell credit spreads ahead of the expected end of Fed secondary market bond purchases.
2: And just to step back for a second, remember spreads in mid to late March hit as high as 400 basis points and have rallied back to now just over about 40 basis points wide of pre-pandemic levels. So I think given the improvement in risk sentiment as we've seen in these credit markets, it poses a risk to both fiscal and monetary policy, maybe undershooting how much support continues to be necessary. So if the Fed were to remove this backstop in the corporate credit markets, I think the loss of confidence could be enough to send spreads wider. And similarly, with respect to fiscal policy, the notion that a significantly smaller bill is needed this time around than when the CARES Act was passed, I think is another manifestation of that risk that because markets have improved so much, maybe there's a perception that less support is needed by monetary and fiscal authorities. And I think that in and of itself proposes a risk to spreads.
0: Absolutely, especially considering that this fiscal package is likely going to be the last one we see before the presidential election. And we're looking at unprecedented uncertainty following the election. And we'll be looking at the very real possibility that we might need more fiscal stimulus in the winter months, and that fiscal stimulus will have to be delivered by potentially a lame duck president. It's just a very uncertain period. And with this being the last fiscal stimulus bill likely before the election, it's one that's going to carry a lot of importance. So I guess just to quickly wrap things up, you have significant risk, I think, in all three of those main storylines, the presidential election, stimulus and the vaccine. And on the reward side, it just doesn't seem very compelling. I mean, we're at 130 basis points right now. And prior to the pandemic, IG index spreads were trading at just below 100 basis points. And that was the result of a very low volatility, years-long yield grab environment. No matter what happens... That's not going to be the way we describe markets in the second half of 2020. And so it's very difficult to see spreads narrowing significantly from current levels. I mean, yes, we've had a nice little run here from 143 down to 130, but how much more can they really compress versus how much could spreads move wider if any one of these three risk factors goes the wrong direction?
2: Yeah, I think there certainly is at this point an asymmetric risk profile to credit spreads, I think there is potential for them to move significantly wider, while the path to narrower spreads is a slower, longer-term grind narrower, despite continued heightened economic uncertainty. This concludes Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode Please email us at daniel.belton b-e-l-t-o-n at bmo.com You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider This show is supported by our team here at BMO including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team the show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified, dot com slash macro horizons slash legal.